Okay, when we were talking about the syndromes here, okay, about the strokes that may affect the brainstem, I told you, uh, we are not going to enter into many clinical medicine or physical exam things in pathophysiology. Okay, you are going to have time to study that. And, well, there are some uh, important things there. Okay, uh, it's important to know at least one example. Like I told you, this lateral medullary syndrome, Wallenberg. Okay, there are some mnemonics that you may use to learn. Okay, to make a differential diagnosis between the manifestations of strokes affecting the posterior circulation. Okay, I was telling you about the, the identification of the structures that are in different parts of the brain stem. Remember the cranial nerves number three and four are in the midbrain. Okay, then in the pons, we have the next four cranial nerves, five, six, seven, eight. And then in the medulla, we have the other four. Okay, uh, there is something called the rule of fourths for the <coughs> brain stem. Very complicated. I have been for many years trying to find something that is simpler than that, but there is nothing that is simpler than that. Okay, uh, I told you study well the lateral medullary syndrome, Wallenberg, okay, that is uh, uh, obstruction of the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. Okay, and presents with a paralysis of the nerves of the lower part of the brainstem. So there you have this phagia, hoarseness, gag reflex is affected, the cerebellum is going to be affected, so they are going to have vertigo, they are going to have different cerebellar problems. Okay, psilateral phase and contralateral body ataxia, the cerebellum is affected. And Below that, you have the lateral pontine. Okay, notice that you have face palsy there. Okay, face palsy, that means the cranial nerve number seven is affected. Okay, one of the things that are important, and we are going back to this because face palsy or facial palsy is a common manifestation, okay, that people may have. Okay, we have some pathologies that affect the nerve itself, okay, the peripheral nerve. So it's going to be a lower motor neuron uh, disorder. But there are diseases or problems that affect the upper motor neuron, either in the cortex or at the level of the nucleus in the brainstem. Okay, and it's important to differentiate them. Okay, and I was looking for a picture that illustrates how we do to clinically differentiate patients okay, when they have a palsy, okay, affecting the facial nerve, okay, versus an upper motor neuron lesion, which is as a result of a stroke. Notice that the patient doesn't have any paralysis in the upper part of the face, okay? And this simply occurs, okay, because the muscles, okay, in the upper part of the face, they receive bilateral innervation, okay, while the lower face receives unilateral innervation. So if someone has Bell's palsy, okay, they are going to have uh, an entire face affected, 
Now, there is a mistake. Who can tell me what's the mistake? Huh? Oh, the mistake is in the in the in the writing. Yeah, shouldn't it be controlled? No, it's okay. That's a tiny mistake. It's not a big <laughs> issue, but it's something that can produce confusion. Okay, and. actually uh, something for example notice that uh, we typically when we study this topic and even when we teach the topic we tend to say if the patient has a stroke they will present with spurring of the forehead because of the bilateral innervation that's correct and when the patient have Bell's palsy they are going to have the entire face affected no spurring of the forehead or eye muscles now notice that the picture on the left there Okay, it's probably a Bell's palsy. Okay, sometimes uh, idiopathic. Sometimes we don't know why the patients have it. Sometimes associated with herpes simplex, or maybe associated with parotid gland disorders, tumors, or something compressing the facial nerve or the otitis or different things. However, uh, that presentation also may appear in some types of upper motor neuron disorders when they affect the nucleus of the cranial nerve, okay? So the mistake that I was telling about is don't associate that entire face palsy with lower motor neuron because that's not always lower motor neuron is when it's Bell's palsy. If there is an infarction to the brain stem, it's going to present exactly in the same way, okay, when you have this lateral uh, pointing, uh, strokes, for example, they are going to affect the upper motor neuron, okay, and it's going to present exactly as a Bell's palsy. What that tells you is don't simplify medicine too much when you have a patient with this presentation, like the guy on the left, don't immediately assume, oh, this is Bell's palsy. Okay, this could be a brainstem stroke, okay, that will present with other things, of course. Uh, for us to say that that is Bell's palsy, the patient shouldn't have any other neurological abnormality. And also, the most important thing to differentiate Bell's palsy from strokes in the brainstem is the time, how it presented. Bell's palsy presents progressively. It takes like three days to develop. Strokes develop suddenly, okay? And Bell's palsy will take like three weeks, okay, to get better, okay? Strokes may never get better. Okay, they may uh, remain with the sequelae of this stroke. Okay, so have it in mind, okay, what is the differential diagnosis for what looks like a Bell's palsy? Okay, brainstem stroke, and it's the one that you have there on that slide. Okay, the lateral pontine syndrome. Okay, that is a, an infarction to the anterior inferior cerebellar artery. Okay, that produces face palsy will affect other things, other, uh, what is that you have there, the, the, the cranial nerves that are present in the pons, okay, may also present with Horner syndrome because it's exactly 
in the lateral part where we have the sympathetic fibers, okay, have trigeminal facial nerve problems. Okay, so I wanted to tell you that I couldn't sleep uh, without. <laughs> so I think that's useful to, to remember. The timing is essential okay, to, to make a difference. Okay. So then we have the last part of this uh, neurology. Okay. Then we are going to discuss some questions so you understand how these things are asked in exams. I think the exam is on Monday. No? So most likely we are going to have the the quiz, okay, during the weekend. We're going to be talking about hemorrhages in the brain, okay, hemorrhages can be as a result of trauma or can be spontaneous and people are taking anticoagulants or as a result of hypertensive emergencies or other conditions, genetic conditions that make the blood vessels very weak or anatomical congenital malformations in the blood vessels or development of aneurysms. Okay, and there are different types of hemorrhages. Some of them occur in between the layers of the meninges. Some of them occur inside the uh, cerebral hemispheres, lobes, in any part. May occur in the brainstem, may occur in the cerebellum. Okay, so that's the reason why we do CT scans in patients when they have focal neurological abnormalities. Okay, to see if they have a bleeding or not. Hemorrhagic stroke represents only 15% of the cases of a stroke but it's essential to rule out bleeding before starting treatment for what looks like an ischemic stroke. Okay, one of the common intracranial bleedings is epidural hematoma. Okay, this typically uh, occurs because of rupture of the middle meningeal artery after a head trauma. Okay, head trauma is another topic for neurology, and depending on the severity, it's divided into concussion, okay, uh, or some other more severe uh, traumatisms to the head. So when you have a collection okay, of blood between the bone and the dura mater, we say we have an epidural hematoma. Okay. Notice that this is a bleeding in an artery, okay, middle meningeal artery. And now that I say middle meningeal artery, when we are on a test, Okay, it's very easy to confuse the terminology okay, when they look very similar. We don't have time, we are under stress, we are like blind. Okay, so be careful with confusing cerebral with cerebellar, middle meningeal with middle cerebral artery. It's very easy to confuse those things. And we know stuff and we click on the wrong answer because we simply didn't realize middle meningeal, middle cerebral. Okay, this is a branch of the maxillary. Okay, patients uh, typically lose consciousness and then recover the consciousness. This is called the lucid interval. They may think they are okay and they want to go home. No, they can't. Okay, they are going to continue bleeding. This is an artery. This is a high pressure system. It's going to start peeling off the dura and the hematoma is going to start growing. Okay, uh, at the beginning they may have no symptoms during this lucid interval, but if they have, a, typically when they have this type of brain trauma, there is a fracture, okay, in, at this level, parietal, okay, in the area that we call the tyrion, 
fracture of the temporal bone with laceration of this artery, so they may have no symptoms or simply the symptoms of the fracture. For example, periauricular hematoma or ecchymosis, uh, hearing loss, facial palsy, different uh, characteristics, hemotympanus, dizziness, okay, the headache, of course, as a result of the trauma. Now, if the hematoma continues growing, okay, then we are going to have the manifestations that we were talking at the beginning of neurology of the herniation of the brain. Okay, they will start having uh, typically the uncal herniation, the uncus starts pushing against the, the cranial nerve number three with the problems in the pupils, okay, the fixation of the pupil, and then starts advancing until it may produce a complete herniation, okay, with the, the problems affecting the cardiorespiratory functions. When we do the CT scan, okay, we are likely to see something that looks like this, okay? A lens-shaped bleeding by convex hematoma, okay, that's gonna grow because it's a high-pressure bleeding, remember, peeling off the dura mater, which is something that is very hard to actually peel off. If you have the opportunity to see a, 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 an autopsy, for example, and you have the opportunity to touch the dura when it's attached to the bone, it's very hard to peel off with our fingers, but the blood is able to do that because of the continuous pressure there. Okay, this is uh, how it looks like again, the biconvex. And there may be, in some cases, a displacement of the midline structures, okay, depending on how big that hematoma is, it's gonna start pushing that hemisphere to the other side. Okay, there you have the explanation of the findings on CT, just for you to have more information if you need it for the future. By convex hyperintensity, okay, midline structures shifted away, that's called a midline shift, as a result of the increased pressure. They give you some important clinical information, estimating the size, okay, CT or MRI. CT is more available, it's, it's faster to do, it's cheaper. So. And we have these, uh, remember, time is tissue, so we don't want to waste time at all in this kind of patients. Then we have the subdural hematoma, okay, this is below the dura. Okay, this is different, the pathogenesis, everything is different here, the type of patient. This may be traumatic or non-traumatic, so maybe acute or chronic. Okay, sometimes it's traumatic, but the patient don't remember any kind of trauma, because it can be produced by mild traumatisms, or simply the patient has memory problems. In mind someone with Alzheimer, other dementia, Parkinson, they don't even remember the, the fall or something. So here we have a collection of blood, of blood below the dura mater, okay, that is producing other type of hematoma. And this is due to rupture of veins, not artery. So it's a slow, low pressure bleeding, okay, that may grow very slowly. It can happen after a head trauma, for example, in acceleration, deceleration injuries, in car accidents, okay, or in people who have any kind of brain atrophy. The elderly, people with chronic and heavy alcohol use, okay, previous traumatic brain injury. Okay, these are 
veins that are called bridging veins that simply come are connecting the brain tissue with the meninges. If someone has brain atrophy, okay, as a result of Alzheimer's, for example, or heavy alcohol use, probably you have heard the phrase uh, when people are drinking alcohol, we are killing some neurons here. No, it says alcohol destroys neurons. That is not uh, true. Okay, what alcohol does is it reduces the number of dendrites. So what we have is a reduction in the volume of the neurons. Okay, and of course there is a shrinking of the brain if the this tree of dendrites is reduced as a result of heavy alcohol use. When can alcoholism actually kill neurons? When there is what we call Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. In that case, uh, people don't eat at all. They simply drink alcohol. They are take, getting the calories from alcohol. And there is a depletion of vitamin B1. So neurons don't have any, any way of making ATP. And there is necrosis of the neurons. And in that case, yes, uh, the number of neurons is reduced. But in any case, there is brain atrophy. Okay? And a smaller brain means the veins are stretched. Okay? They still connect the, the, the brain mass with the meninges. So they are stretched. So any small force, any vibration, acceleration, deceleration, for example, or head trauma, may break down okay, one of these veins and lead to bleeding in this area. So there are some acute or chronic presentations. The acute is easier to recognize okay, because they are going to have the classic symptoms of increasing intracranial pressure, the headache, vomiting, neck stiffness okay, as a result of this increased pressure. And they have the history of a trauma. Okay, we may see the lesions in the scalp, for example. But the chronic is uh, harder to recognize. Vague symptoms, maybe a cognitive impairment, unsteady gait. They may have sometimes seizures and be confused with seizures produced by hypoglycemia, hypotension, stroke, or anything else. May have focal neurologic deficits, so may look like another type of stroke, TIAs, different things. So it's more difficult to recognize. And they may not have any history of trauma. Now, the CT scan will show the bleeding. The hematoma here is different. Okay, it's not by convex, it's crescent-shaped. Okay, so it has a totally different size. Okay, it's slowly expanding. Okay, with the venous flow. Notice also there is a chip of the midline as well. And then we have the subarachnoid hemorrhage. This uh, may result of trauma too, okay, but may be spontaneous. Okay, the, typically, this type of hemorrhage results from ruptured aneurysms or any kind of arteriovenous malformations. Okay, people may be born with different genetic syndromes, with weakness in the collagen, blood vessels, and in the walls of the blood vessels predisposing them to have aneurysms. Okay, so they may have a spontaneous bleeding, for example, if they are taking anticoagulants or excessive aspirin or because of a trauma, okay? May rupture from trauma or non-traumatic causes. There you have some risk factors, atherosclerosis, okay, smoking, excessive alcohol. People with polycystic kidney disease tend to have uh, this type of aneurysms because of the same mutation, okay? Also predisposes to aneurysm formation. Uh, collagen uh, disorders like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, 
Okay, and some others, uh, fibromuscular dysplasia, tends to affect also the renal arteries, and cocaine, amphetamine abuse, anything that increases the blood pressure, okay, and leads to this type of bleedings. Now, the presentation here is the classic, classic, classically described headache that is the worst of my life, and thunderclap headache. Okay, remember, we don't base our diagnosis just on that. Okay, there can be differences. What is the worst for one person, maybe not the worst for another. Okay, and they're gonna have the signs of meningeal irritation, photophobia, neck stiffness, Kernik, Brudzinski. So it may look like a meningitis without fever, without any, any reason to suspect there is an infection. Okay, these people, depending on the amount of bleeding, they may have immediately, uh, they may enter into coma immediately, the loss of consciousness immediately, or may lose consciousness progressively, okay, sometimes with focal neurologic deficits, which are not typical in the subarachnoid hemorrhage, but may have, okay? Uh, we are gonna do a CT, okay? In that case, we are gonna see the bleeding, okay, in the filling all of the contours of the pia mater, the sulci, etc. We're not gonna see a localized hematoma like in the epidural or subdural. Very important that we use a non-contrast CT scan. Okay, mind that we put contrast in a person that is bleeding in the brain tissue. Okay. And the lumbar puncture will show blood, but we don't do that typically, okay, because uh, we may lower the intracranial pressure very fast and produce herniation. Okay, it's not necessary if we have a, a CT scan showing the blood. These are the most common places of the formation of the intra of the aneurysms. Okay, you have a color code in there. Okay, the most common places. Notice you have there the anterior communicating artery, thirty percent. Okay, followed by the posterior communicating, then the middle cerebral, and then the rest. Notice the CT scan on the right, you have the, that, those ventricles filled with blood. Okay, intraventricular bleeding. Of course, that blood is gonna enter immediately in the entire uh, subarachnoid space, <coughs> even in the... Uh, in the lower parts okay, in the spine. Now, hem uh, hemorrhages may occur also in the setting or may be triggered by a hypertensive crisis. Okay, hypertension is common cause of these bleedings. May, may occur in the subarachnoid space or may occur inside the lobes, okay, intraparenchymal hemorrhage. Okay, the manifestations are gonna vary Okay, so hemorrhage in the frontal lobe, in the parietal, in the temporal, manifestations are gonna be different. Okay, remember the pathogenesis of these uh, the people with chronic hypertension, there is a transformation of the blood vessels, there is a accumulation of material that we call lipohyalinosis, so proteins, lipids, okay, and there may be also formation because of the weakness of these blood vessels walls of aneurysms that we call Charcot-Bouchard, microaneurysms that may bleed. Okay, these uh, aneurysms and these bleedings that are due to hypertensive crisis 
tend to affect subcortical structures, okay, basal ganglia, thalamus, cerebellum, pons. So you may predict the manifestations, okay, according to what you have already studied, okay, the, what happens when there is a hemorrhage or a stroke, ischemic stroke, for example, in the thalamus, there is going to be a pure sensitive deficit. In the basal ganglia, it depends on what basal ganglia are affected. Okay, some dyskinesias may present, or ataxia if it's in the cerebellum, in the pons, you know what nerves are there. Okay? You have the other facial nerve, the trigeminal nerve. And also the manifestations depend on the size of the hemorrhage. Okay, tiny hemorrhages will produce more focal signs. If there is a large hemorrhage, there's gonna be increasing intracranial pressure. Okay, more diffuse bilateral signs. And of course the possibility of herniation as a result of this increasing pressure. Okay, there you see how the bleeding appears, for example, in this patient. Notice that it's inside the parenchyma of the brain. Okay, it's not in the meninges, it's not in the ventricles. The ventricles are empty there. This is another CT scan showing a hemorrhage. In this case, in the frontal lobe. Okay, this can be secondary to hypertension, like the one we mentioned before but also to amyloid angiopathy in the case of some types of dementia, okay, with accumulation of amyloid, like Alzheimer's, for example. Amyloid also weakens the blood vessels, okay, so hypertension associated with lipohyalinosis, weakening the blood vessels, in this case is amyloid, is another type of degeneration of these uh, blood vessels, uh, walls, and again, the the manifestations are going to depend on where the bleeding is. Okay, these people have a very high risk for seizures. One of the differential diagnoses of seizures in the adult, elderly, someone who has never had any kind of epilepsy or seizures before that presentation, that can be the presentation of a, of a stroke, of a hemorrhage inside the brain. Now, um, before finishing the neurology part, it's important to, to have clear certain things that may be part of the findings in the patient with stroke. Okay, we already mentioned the facial palsy. Uh, presentation, if it's upper and lower face or only lower face, allows you to differentiate between lower or peripheral nerve palsy or strokes affecting the cortex or the brain stem. Diplopia is finding that may be present in some types of strokes, and not only strokes, for example, multiple sclerosis, okay, other neurodegenerative disorders, and can be sometimes a, a mild finding, uh, simply because of a palsy of the extraocular muscles, okay, sometimes congenital, sometimes acquired, but it's important that we understand how to determine if the patient has something that is a red flag, Okay, and requires admission, referral, etc. Diplopia is simply a symptom that the patients tell you, double vision, okay, and can be due to a dysfunction of the extraocular muscles, okay, of palmoplegia or palmoparesis, okay, sometimes because of problems in the muscle itself, 
or sometimes due to the nerves that innervate them, okay? And it's important when you have the patient with double vision to differentiate binocular versus monocular diplopia, okay? And that's the first step in the differential. Binocular is a double vision that occurs with only with the two eyes open, and when you close, when the patient closes one eye, the double vision disappears. Okay? Then monocular is the one that persists, okay, when the other eye is closed. Okay? And that monocular diplopia, okay, so yes, that there is simply a local eye disease or a refractive problem. So patients should go to the ophthalmologist. They have nothing to do with the neurologist or uh, anything like that. Okay, they have a localized problem in the eye. But the binocular, okay, is the one that then we have to continue working. Is this a problem in the muscles? They are too lax. They have any lesion inside the, the orbit? Have anything that is compressing these muscles or the nerves? Okay, or is there anything more inside in the brain stem or in the brain? Okay, and here we have different things that we can use for the differential diagnosis. Notice that we have cranial nerve palsies, third, fourth, and sixth. But there are other neurological conditions, okay, like myasthenia gravis, okay, or what we call internuclear ophthalmoplegia that may be part of the myasthenia gravis or not. And don't forget thyroid ophthalmopathy, Graves ophthalmopathy, okay, that accumulation of the glycosaminoglycans behind the eye, okay, and also infiltration of the muscles with hyaluronic acid glycosaminoglycans will produce restriction to the movement of the eyes, proptosis, etc. Okay, and there you have the characteristics of the third, fourth, and sixth cranial nerve palsies. Okay, if you remember what well, the function of these muscles is not going to be difficult. Notice cranial nerve three produces vertical and horizontal diplopia, so the double vision can be, okay, vertical or horizontal. Okay, the patients typically have ptosis or reactive pupil, okay, and paralysis of these movements that the cranial nerve three and the, ner uh, the muscles help to do. They are going to have paralysis of adduction, elevation, and depression of the eyes. Okay, they have asymmetry of the pupils. If there is absence of pupillar involvement that is more benign but a fixed pupil. Remember, this may be even a manifestation of herniation of the brain structures compressing the cranial nerve. So sometimes it's mild, sometimes may suggest something really bad. Now, cranial nerve number four typically only produces a vertical diplopia. Okay, this may be as a result of a congenital disorder. Okay, so it'll be present in kids very early in life. Okay, but maybe also acquired because of trauma or simply idiopathic. And the sixth cranial nerve abducens, okay, will present with horizontal diplopia. And we have to rule out different conditions that may be compressing or damaging the nerve, like tumors, okay, or other conditions, elevated intracranial pressure, okay, as a result of diabetes as well. Okay, internuclear ophthalmoplegia, ophthalmoplegia, okay, the two nuclei, okay, in the brainstem, 
of these cranial nerves need to communicate with each other. Okay, so they are going to have an impaired horizontal gaze coordination. Okay, when they look at one side or the other, when you do the, the classic exploration of the movements of the eyes, they are going to have a horizontal gaze problem. Okay, so they are going to have a weak uh, abduction of the affected eye and nystagmus of the contralateral eye. That is how it clinically appears. I think there are some videos on YouTube that you can actually see patients with that. Okay, and this may produce because of strokes in the brainstem or demyelination, as may happen in multiple sclerosis, for example. Okay, in this fasciculus, that is the longitudinal fasciculus, medial longitudinal fasciculus. Okay, and myasthenia uh, gravis, okay, lesion to the neuromuscular junction. Okay. Uh, one of the characteristics or, or the first things that may appear in uh, myasthenia gravis is ptosis of the eyelids. Okay, so they may have, uh, as a result of the weakness of these muscles, ptosis and also diplopia. Sometimes may mimic the internuclear ophthalmoplegia, which means when you do the exploration, they are going to have the exact characteristics of internuclear ophthalmoplegia, weak adduction of one eye and nystagmus in the other eye. So there is your differential diagnosis. Okay, and they, they, they typically don't have any other uh, thing that may make us suspect that there is something inside the brain, strokes, or any kind of demyelination. Okay, and of course, there are tests that we can do to diagnose if the patients have myasthenia gravis, repeated nerve stimulation that may, will make it worse, or simply placing eyes on the eyelids that will improve the ptosis, or looking for antibodies. Okay, against the acetylcholine receptor. Okay, so. And the last thing is the visual deficits that some people may have, okay, depending on where they have uh, the neurological problem. Okay, notice the different types of visual deficits, okay. Uh, with the number one, you have what we call a central scotoma, central blind spot. Okay, sometimes it be unilateral or bilateral. Okay, in the case of macular degeneration, for example, they will have a bilateral central scotoma with loss of the central vision totally. Okay, but if this is unilateral, we have to suspect conditions that are affecting the optic nerve like optic neuritis. Of course, optic neuritis can be bilateral, okay, but if they have a bilateral optic neuritis, neuritis, the manifestations tend to be asymmetric. Typically, one nerve is going to be more affected than the other. With the number two, okay, we have a lesion producing bitemporal hemianopia or hemianopsia. Okay, this occurs when there is a lesion affecting the optic chiasm, remember the classic pituitaria adenoma that grows anteriorly, compressing the chiasm. Okay, with the number, no, that is the number three. We are moving on the left column. Let's go to the number two. Total blindness in one eye. You cut the, the optic nerve. That is what will happen. There is no central or peripheral vision spare. Simply complete vision of the right optic nerve. They may occur in a 
head trauma, for example, fractures of the orbital bones that cut the optic nerve. Okay, then with the number four, we have right nasal. Okay, this is a very, this is not common at all. That's why you don't see anything there in bold letters. But for example, calcified internal carotid artery may produce that. That is totally uncommon. With the number five, we have right homonymous hemianopia. They don't see anything to the right. The two right visual fields are affected. This may result from a lesion in the optic tract. Okay. Then we are going to move to the number nine. And there is a right homonymous hemianopia, exactly as the one above. But there is a macular sparring. What is the difference in the diagram uh, representing the visual fields? The macula is a spare. Okay, that represents a lesion affecting the visual cortex. Okay, posterior cerebral artery occlusion. Don't forget the macula, the, the neurons in the cortex that receive the information from the macula are or receive the blood from the middle cerebral artery, not from the posterior. That's why they have this macular spurring. Okay, and then we have the number eight, right homonymous hemianopia. Okay, very similar to the number five. Okay, complete lesion of the left optic radiation. So number five and number eight are exactly the same. So a complete right homonymous hemianopia may be due to optic tract or optic radiation. There is no way that we can differentiate unless we do an MRI. Clinically, we can't. And we have some questions here. Okay, that we can use to practice. But I think it's better to have a break, no? Until 11. And we start the questions. So we reset. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, questions. Right, here we go. Okay. You've had these questions, no, for a while? So let me know what you think here about the what's going on. 78-year-old female. When you have these long questions, remember, look at the options and what you have to find what you're looking for in that vignette so you don't have to read it twice. Okay, you have different anterior cerebral, middle cerebral, posterior, inferior cerebellar, and vertebrobasilar insufficiency, hemiplegic migraine. So what is the most likely diagnosis? Female in the ED, sudden onset of neurologic symptoms, she suddenly felt strange, headache, and past history of hypertension, diabetes, atherosclerosis, blood pressure is elevated. There is numbness in the left lower face. Headache improves with acetaminophen. She has decreased pain and temperature sensation on the right. So left lower face, problem with the pain temperature on the right side of the body, ataxic gait, gut reflexes absent. 
What is that? Posterior what? A cerebral artery? That is the P-I-C-A. Okay? And I told you, pay attention to that syndrome. There you have the why the others are not. Okay? Uh, compare that one with the vertebrobasilar insufficiency. Remember, it's important to differentiate anterior circulation, which is MCA, ACA, versus posterior, which is everything that uh, vertebrobasilar system, okay, posterior cerebral artery. Notice vertigo, nausea, vomiting, nystagmus, dysartria, dystonia, ataxic gait. Okay, and what is that hemiplegic migraine? Okay, that presents with uh, stroke-like syndrome. Uh, headache and stroke-like symptoms. Looks like a stroke. Okay, but the neurological symptoms improve when the headache improves. So treating the migraine will treat the neurological symptoms. No sequelae there, no evidence of necrosis or infarction in the brain. Now, which of the following do you expect in a patient with left middle cerebral artery? Will affect more the legs or the arms? Legs and face, or, or legs and legs only, or mostly, or arms and face? Arms and face. And may present with aphasia if it's the dominant hemisphere, or neglection if it is the non dominant. What will present with sensory deficits only? An infarction where? In the thalamus. Then you have other things that are maybe interesting. For example, laginar infarctions in the pons may present with something called clumsy hand dysartria syndrome. You may imagine how the patient looks like. They don't speak well, slurred speech, and a clumsy hand, so affecting more distal muscles. And then we have the vertebrobasilar circulation, posterior, that will produce vertigus, nystagmus, cranial nerve, this is brainstem, any of those syndromes. Uh, greatest, greatest in the legs, that is going to be anterior cerebral artery, and lacunar infarctions in the thalamus, sensory deficits only, pure sensory stroke. Okay, there you have some illustration of the different arteries that supply different parts of the brain, brainstem, etc. Okay, and here we have a 74-year-old female. Okay, was eating breakfast when she suddenly was unable to lift the spoon with the right hand. She would try to get up, but the right leg felt weak. We have a hemiparesis there. Right? No, let's see. Right hand and right leg. Okay. 
Later, strength is 0 out of 5 by uh, the upper and lower extremities to the right. In the left side is normal. Sensation is normal bilaterally. CT scan doesn't show anything. Doesn't show hemorrhage. Okay, MRI shows infarction in the internal capsule. What is that? That is a pure motor stroke. She doesn't have any sensory deficits. It's affecting the internal capsule. And that's the place where the fibers from the motor cortex travel down to the spinal cord. Now, what is true about this process? Most important risk factors are hypertension and diabetes. Most common cause of embolism from the left atrium is produced by ischemia to watershed areas. Watershed areas are the areas that are in between okay, the branches of the middle cerebral artery and anterior cerebral artery, or in between the branches of the MCA and the posterior cerebral arteries. Okay, typically, these areas receive very little blood supply. So when there is a hypotension, the blood supply is going to even be lower, and they may develop strokes as affecting these areas. Thrombolysis cannot be used. Is that true? Or the most important risk factors are ethnicity and sex. So what type of infarction is that? Is a large vessel or is a lacunar infarction? Large vessels infarctions are those that affect the large vessels, middle cerebral arteries or anterior cerebral artery. This is something that is affecting the internal capsule is a small area, one of the small penetrating branches. What is the truth about this lacunar infarction in the internal capsule? The most important risk factors are hypertension and diabetes, or the most common cause is embolism from the left atrium. That's hard. At least tell me which are not true. Four and five. I would include the not true. So we have to decide between one and two. I don't want to be in that situation. But let's see why this is the Okay, the most, the, the, the best option. Okay, this is a lacunar infarction. Okay, diabetes hypertension. Notice that the answer two, which is the one that also could be true if the one wasn't there, predisposes to embolisms, okay? But they typically don't produce lacunar strokes. They tend to produce middle cerebral artery. Remember, the embolisms will go through the aorta, Okay, then they're going to go through the internal carotid and directly to the MCA. Typically, embolisms, or more likely, are going to produce MCA infarctions. Okay? Like, you know, strokes may occur as a result of a lipohyalinosis in these branches, these small penetrating arteries. Like, you know, infarctions may be as a result of amyloid deposition as well. You have amyloid and non-amyloid types. The non-amyloid type is the lipohyalinosis in hypertension. 
and diabetes. In patients with Alzheimer's, for example, the generation of the blood vessels produces beta amyloid deposition, and they are more likely to have TIAs as a result of this degeneration, or in any case, either hypertension, diabetes, or Alzheimer's, the degeneration may produce aneurysms, and they may have bleeding, okay, if there is a rupture of these aneurysms. There you have this. <coughs> Now, 72-year-old, long-standing diabetes, hypertension, has sudden onset of numbness. There is loss of sensation on the left side of the face, arm, and leg. Motor strength is normal. Okay, and the cranial nerves too. What is the most likely explanation for that? That is easy. Yeah? The what? Motor strength exam is normal. Remember, anterior cerebral, and it's everything, face, arm, leg. And it's sensory. Hmm? Loss of sensation everywhere on the left. Motor strength exam is normal. Cranial nerves are normal. So we call that a pure sensory, you know? The thalamus again. I don't want you to, to forget that. And there you have a yellow arrow with a dark spot in the thalamus. Now, this is a bit complicated. Okay, 68 year old. Okay, he was found altered at home. The wife says that he fell and wasn't able to get back up okay, while walking to bed. Okay. When she approached him, she found he was unable to move the left leg. History, hypertension, AFib, diabetes. Smoking for a lot of time. Okay, still has difficulties moving the leg. Okay, uh, the motor function in the left arm is okay. So it's the left leg that has weakness. Where or what area? Okay, and that's hard because what artery is that? Only leg. Motor weakness in the leg. What is that? Hmm? What artery? ACA, MCA? Okay. If you know that this 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 is the ACA. Where the ACA go? If you have to answer this question, goes to the temporal. Well, you have cingulate gyrus, globus pallidus, lateral medulla, lingual gyrus, superior temporal gyrus. The anterior cerebral artery goes to the anterior part. So you can rule out things there. For example, brain stem can be ruled out. The lateral medulla. The temporal can be ruled out. The globus pallidus is one of the basal ganglia, so we can rule out that, that is MCA. So we have the singular gyrus and the lingual gyrus. Do you remember where are those from anatomy? What is the singular gyrus? Here, no, this is here. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
around here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. The link was lower, right? I think, I think it's one. You think, you think it's what? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Trust your God. Trust your God. Trust your God. Look at the anatomy. Look at, I didn't put a picture there. Okay, but. Trust your, okay, I think it's this, that is. And move on. Don't go back to that question. What is the, the lingual gyrus is uh, related to the primary visual cortex there in the occipital. Okay, what we uh, there are different mnemonics, uh, lingual like tongue. We talk about what we see, something like you can remember. Okay. okay. And there you have the others, uh, so you know how to rule out those. Now this is a 25-year-old male rugby player, severe headache. Accompanied by a teammate that reports he had a head-to-head -head collision and passed out before regaining consciousness. That's probably the lucid interval that we were talking before, probably. History significant for, for pilocytic astrocytoma as a child. I was treated properly. Okay, stroke in the father, vitals, blood pressure is a bit elevated, rest is okay. Is lethargic but oriented to person, place, and time. Hmm. What do you think the patient has before going to the artery? Epidural, Epidural hematoma. Now you can answer the question, which is? And here's what I tell you be careful with the middle cerebral artery. Okay, you can confuse with a middle meningeal artery or something like that. And you may be tempted to choose superior superficial temporal artery, okay, maxillary artery. Which of course comes from internal carotid, but we have to look at the more direct relationship. And there you have the hematoma. Now, 73-year-old male, sudden onset of hemiplegia, no history, progressively, becomes progressively lethargic. Okay, the CT scan shows something really bad there. Notice that uh, hyper-intense lesion, and also notice the size of the ventricles. It's like a, the Head looks like antique, no? or like a cotton. Autopsy is performed, and a section from the autopsy is shown. Hmm. What predisposes to that? Vascular malformation. The patient has a bleeding. Before the bleeding, probably there was an aneurysm. Okay, there is a sudden onset of hemiplegia, but they don't tell us anything about head trauma. So probably it's a spontaneous bleeding because of the rupture of the aneurysm inside the brain. 
ventricles are empty, so this is not a subarachnoid, it's more an intraparenchymal hemorrhage in a 73-year-old male with no significant medical history. Is that vascular malformation, vasculitis, hypertension, amyloid, angiopathy, cardiac arrhythmia? Hmm? You have to choose one of those. What do you think? Hypertension. Could be, could be hypertension, could be amyloid and neopathy. They both can lead to, to aneurysms. However, they say that this guy doesn't have any medical history significant, which may be normal in someone with hypertension or diabetes. They don't have medical attention. Of course, that's why I say. Thirty percent of the people with diabetes are undiagnosed. The same with some people with hypertension or untreated. That's the universe. You have to work with the information that you have there, and it's amyloid. Okay. Remember one thing. Remember one thing. Remember one thing about the about the diseases that are undiagnosed. What is more likely uh, that someone has an undiagnosed and subclinical and maybe never clinical Alzheimer's disease or a hypertension? The demyloid, the demyloid, the amyloid deposition, okay, starts decades before the memory loss occurs, before the symptoms start occurring. So the changes that are occurring, okay, in the brain, okay, will start presenting decades exactly as in the type two, the type two diabetes. Okay, in type two diabetes, what we have is amyloid deposition in the pancreas, and this ends up impairing the insulin production, plus other metabolic abnormalities, okay, and the symptoms appear maybe when people are 50-something, 60, but this is happening since they were kids, okay, this chronic inflammatory uh, status as a result of stress, triglycerides, and fructose, and all of these abnormalities is occurring very, very early in life. So this person doesn't have any, maybe, memory problems, or at least not significant. Okay, oh, I am 73, what do you think? How do you want me to remember where I parked the car? That's something that happens naturally. But decades before of this, the amyloid is there, and it's damaging the blood vessels, and it's producing aneurysms. So maybe they never get diagnosed with Alzheimer's, because they die of a brain hemorrhage. Okay, so couple of years before they were going to develop the memory problems. Remember, Alzheimer's for some people is called diabetes mellitus type 3. It has exactly the same pathogenesis. Okay, but it's occurring in the brain instead of in the pancreas. Mm -hmm. uh, the vascular malformation, for example, the congenital aneurysms, will produce intra-subarachnoid uh, hemorrhage. 
more likely in the ACA than in the areas. So the ventricles would be filled with blood, and we would see more blood in subarachnoid space. Would that be the same cause for vasculitis as well? Or vasculitis? Um, it depends on, uh, uh, on what type of vasculitis is, what vessels they are affecting, large vessels, middle vessels, small vessels. But that is not very common. And it's not gonna, yeah, it's gonna be younger. It's not gonna manifest with when they are 73 with no history as well. So 44-year-old female, okay, in the neurology service um, admission documentation, she was started on nimodipine. Which of the following pathologies would benefit from this pharmacologic therapy? Well, that is a pure pharmacology or medicine question. What would uh, benefit from having a calcium channel blocker? Pseudotumor cerebrae, thromboembolic strokes, epidural hematoma, subdural, subarachnoid hemorrhage. What, what is a calcium channel blocker doing to the blood vessels of the brain, to the... I don't know if you have studied that. Okay. Subarachnoid hemorrhage. We are reducing the pressure. We are trying to prevent the bleeding that goes further. So calcium channel blockers help people with subarachnoid hemorrhage above everything else. Okay, we don't want more blood in the subarachnoid space. You have there the explanation. Okay, to reduce the post-bleeding vasospasm and further ischemia of the brain. Now, 48-year-old male, sudden onset, onset of uh, headache, severe headache, vomiting, confusion, no trauma, no family history, non-contrast shows blood between arachnoid and pia, subarachnoid, what is the most likely complication of a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Blindness, arterial vasospasm, hemorrhoid shock, bacterial meningitis, renal failure. I think just without studying, simply ruling out, this doesn't make any sense. You can get and analyzing the question that we saw before. Why do we use a calcium channel blockers in a patient with subarachnoid hemorrhage to prevent further what? Bleeding. Also, vasospasm. Remember when there is bleeding, there is vasoconstriction. Remember at the, at the beginning when we saw the pathogenesis of strokes, okay, we put bleeding or hemorrhagic stroke, and at the end there was ischemia stroke, with an asterisk, I told you, there's a ischemia, but remember this is actually hemorrhagic. What happens is when there is hemorrhage, there is a reflex vasoconstriction that leads to ischemia of the territories of these uh, arteries. So when there is a bleeding, there is gonna be a reflex constriction, so we wanna prevent the ischemia that happens as a result of this vasoconstriction, so we op try to open up the vessels. So arterial basis passes. 
But notice with the options that none of the other options make sense in the setting of a subarachnoid hemorrhage. Blindness or kidney failure or hemorrhagic shock. How much blood fits in the subarachnoid space to produce a shock? Two tables. Now, 65-year-old male, after an accident, a bicycle, he was riding in the woods, fell on the left side. Okay, when getting up, he had difficulty hearing on the left side and decided to visit the hospital. Vitals are okay, alert, oriented. As to smile is asymmetric and the left forehead is, forehead is not wrinkled. Mm -hmm. So hearing loss, we have the cranial nerve number eight and cranial nerve number seven affected there. Otoscopic examination, there is fluid pushing on the left tympanic membrane. He's unable to walk in a straight line without feeling unsteady. And we are having more, maybe cerebellar problems there or some proprioception, who knows? Admitted for observation, later, a day later, bruising over the left mastoid process is noted. What is the cause of that? Anterior cranial fossa fracture, occipital, skull, orbital, roof, temporal bone, or zygo, zygomaticofrontal. That's not difficult. It's more difficult to read the vignette than... <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Yeah, what, what bone is the one that is related to the cranial nerve? Eight, seven, okay, four And looking at the hematoma and the options. Okay, which of the following vessels is deep temporal, internal carotid? Hmm. They are not saying anything about the ones that we were expecting. Mm. Skateboard accident. Breathing vein, deep temporal, internal carotid, maxillary. Oh my goodness, that is a more uh, advanced anatomy question. Maxillary Okay. What is the explanation? Middle meningeal artery, which is a branch of the maxillary artery. Okay. Now, 59-year-old, history of AFib on warfarin, has acute onset dizziness. She was watching TV when she suddenly felt the room spinning around her when she was getting up to the bathroom. No fever, weight loss, just pain, palpitations, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, pain, but has difficulty walking and hiccups. Well, difficulty walking, hiccups, vertigo. The person taking warfarin and AFib. Physical exam, rotatory nystagmus, decreased pin prick sensation throughout the left side, MRI, shows ischemic changes in the right lateral medulla, 
what other symptoms do you expect? Lateral medulla. Remember the rule of force. What cranial nerves are in the, in the medulla oblongata? 9, 10, 11, 12. So hypoglossal, vagus, okay, you have the glossopharyngeal. And what is, what is, what is, what is the... What is, what is the right medulla, okay? Right medulla. Is in the right? I don't know. In the right side of the medulla, we have the hypoglossal nerve, the right hypoglossal nerve that goes to the right side of the tongue. Language, language decreased. Gag reflex, what is that? I don't see agreements. Do you think there is going to be a face palsy? Or right lower limb palsy? Sciatic nerve doesn't arise from the brainstem? <laughs> now we have gag reflex language or tongue deviation to the left. When you have a paralysis in the right side of the tongue, okay, those muscles are going to be paralyzed in the right side. Okay, the tongue typically deviates towards the right, the side of the lesion. Okay, so it's going to would be deviated towards the right. Okay, remember the the tongue is a muscle that pushes forward. Mind two muscles pushing forward the tongue, and this in the right is not working, so the left is going to be stronger. It's going to because this one is paralyzed. It's going to deviate towards the right. If this was the hypoglossal nerve. Language impairment. That is confusing because language for me means brocas wernikis. So they don't have any problem with language. Maybe with speaking, maybe they have a dysarthria. But that is not a language. But maybe confusing, I mean, in the setting of an exam. Oh, it's Lord's speech. That's not language, that is mechanical, neuromuscular. So, gag reflex. Because there we have a. This is the Wallenberg syndrome. See why I told you study that? <laughs> because it's the one that appears like 95% of the time in every question bank. Ah, well, there you have a case to read another um, video about the posterior circulation strokes. And we are done for, for the semester.